right, we are starting something brand new tonight. We are moving past the attributes of God. I hope um, that that was beneficial. I hope that we have learned a lot in that and seen God um, a little bit more deeply, and uh, we are in a little bit more awe of Him, hopefully a lot of awe of Him. Um, as the more we know who He is, the more that His children love Him, and we are to be in awe of God, and, and I love going through those attributes the second time we've done it, and sweeter this time, better this time, um, and if we ever do it again the third time, it'll be uh, better there as well. But tonight, we're going to turn our attention to something else, and before we do that, I, I was this question came to mind. I was thinking about it, and you don't have to answer this out loud, um, but just you think about it. Do you have a favorite sermon that you've ever heard? Some, you know, when you talk about some of the best sermons or the most uh, famous sermons, if you will, a lot of, a lot of times we'll uh, go to Jonathan Edwards and we'll go back to uh, 1741 in Massachusetts where he gave what is considered one of the most famous uh, sermons of all time entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, you can find that. You can find the... Uh, books. You can find, we have it at home, and it gives you a word-by-word uh, outline of that sermon, and it is intense and not for the weak of heart. He does not pull any punches, and, and some will say, yeah, Jonathan Edwards sinners in the hands of an angry God. Um, I would put that as an amazing sermon. I, I also uh, would say that the first time I heard R.C. speak on the holiness of God in Isaiah 6, I'll never forget that. Uh, that was a life-changing sermon uh, for me, and also, if I had to throw another one in there, um, many of you may know this because I've, I've mentioned it a lot recently, uh, it would be from Michael Reeves in the triune God that we heard at the Ligonier Conference. Um, what an amazing sermon that was. And, but everybody has a little different uh, of opinion. Everybody has different sermons that mean something to them or they remember. Uh, but tonight, we are going to start on a whole new series, if you will, and we are going to go into a sermon preached by Jesus. Would you go to hear a sermon preached by Jesus? <laughs> I would, right? There's a lot of people that I probably wouldn't go listen to. Uh, I've heard this all my life. I probably wouldn't go across the street to listen to him preach. I remember hearing that all my life. And there, that's true. And, but you know what? How cool would it be? You know, we have, we, you can get the sermon notes of Jonathan Edwards. You can read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and you say, wow, it's almost like I was there. But in a sense, what we're going to start on is we have the sermon notes for a sermon preached by Jesus. Isn't that cool? To think about that in his public ministry, the Sermon on the Mount is his first public sermon. And we have the notes, if you will. We have the inspired Word of God. And I believe that of all the sermons we may love or remember, this is the one sermon that gets overlooked so much. I think this is a sermon that we will uh, probably, if we're honest with ourselves, we will put, pick out verses and say, oh yeah, it's in Matthew 5 and here's where this is and I remember this verse. But not too many people probably have just started and read the Sermon on the Mount from start to end to see the context, to see what's happening. And I believe that's a shame as this is a sermon by the greatest preacher of all time, Jesus, God incarnate. And this is what we're going to dive into. We're going to spend the next, I don't know how many weeks, unpacking the Sermon on the Mount. 
We're going to go verse by verse, and we're going to see what was so important that in his first public sermon, this is the, these are the things that Jesus addressed. I think there's some importance and some urgency there, and that's what we're going to do as we begin this study of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, with that being said, we're going to cover verse 1, 2, and 3 tonight. We won't get very far uh, because we have to kind of set things up a little bit. Now, if you are in the NASB Bible, you will see that at the top of chapter 5, it says the Sermon on the Mount, and then it says the Beatitudes. Have you ever heard that, the Beatitudes? Well, what are the Beatitudes? Now, why is that here? What does that mean? Well, the word Beatitude comes from the Latin word beatus, or beatus, which is the term for blessedness. So, because these verses here will begin with the word blessed, that has ta- they have taken the Latin word and put that to mean the Beatitudes, the blessed verses, if you will, the verses that begin with that term for blessing. That's why they're called that. There's the origin behind that, and the Greek word used here would be makarios. But that's why it's called the Beatitudes. These are a series of verses that talk about who the blessed ones are. And that is why this section is called the Beatitudes. So let's read verses 1 through 3 and then begin to see what the opening of Jesus' sermon looks like. It says this in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 1. It says, When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and after He sat down... His disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's how he starts his first public sermon. We're going to unpack those verses tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. Lord, to come and gather again with your people. Father, I ask tonight that you would send the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, to illumine our eyes, to uh, open our hearts, and to teach us the things of your Word. Lord, these are your words. This is your sermon, Lord, and we pray that you would give us understanding. Eyes to see, ears to hear. Help us tonight, Lord, to speak in truth, and that we would never be the same after hearing your words. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll start in verse 1, and we see some very important things that may get overlooked if we're not careful. It says this in verse 1, When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. Now, I don't know how many churches you've ever been in, but every church I've ever been in, when the pastor uh, gets up to deliver a sermon, what is his posture? He's doing like I'm doing tonight. He's standing up. Have you ever been to a church where the pastor just sits? I've never been there. I think it probably has, and it's possibly there, an option. But we see that anymore we got preachers who you can't have a big enough stage, can't be tall enough. You can't have the audience dimmed enough and the spotlight on the stage. And all the attention goes to that person. I personally 
have to stand. I do better that way. But in these times, it was the tradition of the rabbi. And we talked about that a little bit on Sunday. But it was the tradition of the rabbi or the teacher when it was coming time to teach and the lesson was about to begin, what they would do to signify to the students, to the disciples, to those who were there, to, to signal to them that get ready to listen, I'm getting ready to teach, what they would do is they would sit down and teach. Isn't that something? How when Jesus taught, and you look through the, you look through the scriptures, and a lot of the times you will see, and he sat down to teach them. And he sat down to teach them. Isn't that a far cry from what we do today? He wasn't all over the place. He wasn't, he wasn't bringing all this attention by hovering over everybody. He sat down and he began to teach. And we see examples of this in the scripture. And we read this the other day in uh, Luke chapter 4. I want to go there so you can see this. Because you may have heard of the term synagogue, but this is the definition of, of where they would go and where the rabbis would teach, and it would be where they would come and they would read Scripture and they would hear uh, sermons, if you will, and teaching on the Scriptures. And Jesus, who throughout Scripture is referred to as a rabbi, uh, we know that he has went into synagogues, and, and we have this uh, narrative here that we see this in Luke chapter 4. I'm going to read it to you again, if we can, and, and I want you to see the portion of Scripture where Jesus sat down to begin to teach. It says this in verse 14, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread through all the surrounding district. And He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. He's a rabbi. He's teaching there. And He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. So when they would read the scripture, they would stand. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, but he, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2a. He does not read 2b because that is not yet fulfilled. That's where he brings his wrath and vengeance. But he reads this section, quoting from Isaiah, and look what verse 20 says. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. That's the posture of those teaching that they would sit down to begin to teach. And here Jesus is in the synagogue. He reads the scripture, and now class is in session, if you will. He's getting ready to teach, and he sits down. This is the cue to all those who are around to say, listen up, because I'm getting ready to teach. And he sat down, and all the eyes of, the, all, and the, eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The scripture of the text is amazing to me. These people would have been familiar with the Old Testament. They would have known that prophecy from Isaiah. And here Jesus is. And they go down to question a little bit later. And they say, but isn't this son of Joseph? They start to question things a little bit. But here is this one in front of them who claims to be the fulfillment in their presence of the promised one in the Old Testament. 
It's an amazing scripture. We won't spend all night there. But what I wanted you to see is that tradition was that the teacher would come and sit down to teach. And this is no different in Matthew chapter 5, where it says he saw the crowds. He went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. What did he teach them? Well, verse 3 gives us a clue. He says this in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's the start of the Beatitudes, the blessedness of God upon people. But before we get into that meaning of that text, we have to set the parameters of what is happening here. I want to discuss the word oracle. This word is in the Bible, maybe you've heard it, but an oracle is a message from God or the words of God. And we see this in many instances in the Old Testament where the prophets would come and they would give either a prophet, or a prophecy, a word from God that was either a blessing or a cursing. And that's what I want to look at today. It's on your sheet, but I'll write it up here. That when the oracles were given, they were broken up into two categories. And the first one you probably know. You've probably seen that in the Bible. Woe. We've got some examples of this. But the woe oracle was that of judgment. It was not a good oracle. It was not a good word of God or to hear it. Every word of God is perfect and pure, but those who would be on the receiving end of the woe would be absolutely on the wrong end of where they wanted to be, or the, the terror of this would be upon them because God would pronounce judgment in the form of oracles, and that would start those verses or those messages by woe. The other one we're not so familiar with, but it is the word wheel. This translates into, again, blessedness or blessed. So you either had an oracle of woe or you had an oracle of wheel. One was judgment and doom. One was of blessing or blessedness upon that person or that situation. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We have to understand that to understand the Beatitudes. Because the Beatitudes start with what? Blessed. So we have to understand that this is an oracle, this is a, a blessedness that comes from God, and we, we have to establish this before we start to move through the, the Beatitudes. Let's look at some examples of the oracles of woe in the Bible. Isaiah 3 verse 11 says this, Woe to the wicked! It will go badly with him, for what he deserves will be done to him. These are messages from God. This is coming from God through the prophet Isaiah. And he says, woe, woe to the wicked, judgment to the wicked. So these are examples of the woe judgment or the woe oracle. Isaiah chapter five, verse 20 says this, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Sound like today in America? Yes, it is. And look at this oracle, woe. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter judgment upon these people. Woe. Isaiah 10, verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. You did not want to be on the receiving end of an oracle of woe. 
a word from God that brought judgment. Again, two categories, blessedness or judgment and doom, woe or weal. Isaiah 45, verse 9, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An earthen vessel along, among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, He has no hands. When I read that verse, I think about Romans 9. That says, Who will say to the potter, How dare you? Or how could you make me this way? I'd like you to look at how that verse starts. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An, earth, um, an earthen vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. It's a serious thing to look up to the, the potter as a weak earthen vessel and to quarrel and to say, how dare you? In Isaiah, he gives that as a oracle of woe. Matthew, we move to the New Testament. There's many more. This is just a few. Matthew 11, verse 21, he talks about the cities that, that there would be a pronunciation of judgment and doom on. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. He pronounces judgment and doom upon these places because they saw many miracles and did not repent. The more that we are blessed to see, the more opportunities we have, and the more that we reject God, the more judgment that will fall upon those individuals. And in Matthew 23, multiple verses, multiple verses giving woe of judgment to the Pharisees. That's what Matthew 23 is stacked full of. We'll give you just a little bit of a taste of it in Matthew 23, verse 13. He says this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you, are, you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around the sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Wow. He's not mincing words. This is an oracle of woe. Woe to you, blind guides. Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold, the temple is obligated. He goes down a little farther. And he says this in verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but the inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the outside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Look, there's more in that chapter. But do you see what's happening here? This is a pronunciation of judgment and doom upon the Pharisees, and that is brought about by woe. This is the word of God, from God. Woe unto you. And this next verse is terrifying. If you remember, and I think you do, 
If you remember Isaiah chapter 6, and if you remember Revelation chapter 4, there's only one attribute of God that is raised through the threefold repetition. It's the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy. We talked about the importance of the twofold repetition, but when something ascends to the threefold repetition, it is of the utmost importance. But in Revelation chapter 8, we hear the most terrifying thing that a human being could ever hear. There's no more terrorizing thing that can be heard than what is said in Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. Listen to this. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in midheaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe. That is not something to overlook. It is in this judgment that God raises his woe judgment to the third degree. Just as he raised his name his, and his holiness to the third degree, to the threefold repetition, now he comes to the judgment and wrath that he will pour out, and he raises that to a threefold repetition. There's nothing that is more terrifying to humans or should be to humans than to hear the oracle of God that pronounces his judgment and doom to a threefold repetition because God's wrath is perfect. God's wrath is pure. God's wrath is immutable. And it is unimaginable. His judgment, His wrath. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Judgment, doom, woe, woe, woe. You've probably heard that word throughout church history of the times you've been through church. Woe. We have to understand the importance of it. Two kinds of oracles, woe or wheel. That's the woe. That's the bad. That's coming from God. Who brings that judgment? God. So who brings the blessing? God. These are coming from God. God is the one who brings judgment. He's also the one that distributes blessing. Now we're going to turn our attention from the woe and look to the wheel. In this wheel, in that ancient language, this is where this word blessed comes from. So in the Old Testament, it was woe or wheel. And here we see what this means primarily in its greatest sense of what blessedness means. And if you have been here at any time at all, you know that we go to Numbers chapter 6 for this. Numbers chapter 6 explains to us who the blessed man is. And it says this in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 through 26. This is Aaron's benediction. This is a synonymous parallelism. And it says this. The Lord bless you. Who brings the judgment and the woe? It is God. Who brings the blessing? It is God. Blessed are the Lord bless you and keep you. Now, let's hear what, the, what that means, that when the Lord blesses you. The Lord makes His face shine upon you. That's from God. God does that. That's His sovereign freedom to do. 
He can make his face shine on anyone that he wants, and he can withhold that shining of his face on anyone that he wants. He is not obligated. He is not bound by anyone to make his face shine upon everyone the same. But the blessed man is the one whom God does shine his face upon. The one he does shine his face upon. And it says, and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. The blessed man is the one whom God shines his face upon and lifts up his countenance upon. This is the one whom God shines the glory of his gospel upon, the light of who he is upon, and gives them grace and peace. The blessed man is the Christian. The blessed man is the saved person. The blessed man is the one whom God, the same God who spoke into creation and said, let there be light. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us this, that he speaks, let there be light into our dark souls that hate the light. And we come into the light because he shined the light of his countenance upon us. The blessed man is one whom God does these things. Now, we look at the blessed man a lot of times and say, well, look at all the material things I have. Look how blessed I am. Someone will sneeze, and what's the first thing we say? God bless you. You mean, may the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and shine upon you and be gracious? That's the true definition of it. Now, we know what we mean. That's a kind gesture. But if you want to get down to the true blessedness of God, it is upon those whom he shows mercy and grace. He shines his face upon, he lifts his countenance upon, he shows grace to, and he gives them peace. That is the blessed man. The blessed person, the blessed human being is the person who God has regenerated. That's what's at stake here. That's important as we get to the Beatitudes because he's going to say, blessed are you. Blessed is the one who does these things. And then that'll be able to help us to understand the context a little bit better. Let's read some examples of the blessed oracles. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 starts out with this. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Psalm 2, verse 12. Do homage to the Son, that he... Not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those, are all who take refuge in him. That's right. Who takes refuge in him? His children. Those are the ones that run to him after he has shined his face upon. And all that take refuge in him are eternally safe. Those are the blessed people. Psalm 32, verse 1 through 2, in this section of Scripture, if you, if you like to make notes of cross-reference, this would be a good place to do it, because in Psalm 32, verse 1 through 2, this is the text that Paul will quote from in Romans chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. And we see that down here a little bit farther down the sheet. But here's what the psalmist says about the blessed man. And tell me if this sounds like someone whom God has shined his face upon lifted his countenance upon. He says, How blessed is the he whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whom spirit there is no deceit. Does that sound like a blessed man? Does that sound like a Christian? That's the, that's the great exchange. You've just heard the great exchange. And what the psalmist says in Psalm 32, the blessed one is the one to whom God has imputed his righteousness and his sins, the, the, the human sins are, what? They're forgiven and they're covered. 
the Lord does not impute iniquity to them because he's imputed that iniquity to him. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's what this verse is saying, and that is the one who's blessed. The blessed one is the regenerate one whom God has saved. Psalm 65, verse 4. How blessed is the one whom you choose and bring near to you to dwell in your courts. You will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. So to the one whom God chooses to bring near to his courts to dwell, that's the blessed man. Does that go along with what we're saying? Yes, it does. Jeremiah 17, 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. Matthew 16, verse 17, this is where uh, Peter had uh, acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah. And he says, and Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 25, verse 34, then the kings will say to those, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, when? From the foundation of the world. Again, who is the blessed one? When we see that word, blessed is, we have to know the context. We have to go to number six, and we have to know that the blessed man is the one whom God has shined his face upon, lifted his countenance upon, gave grace, and restores peace in that soul. And we see it here. Blessed. Blessed are those who have been blessed by my Father. Who does the blessing? It's from God. God is the one who brings either the judgment or the oracle of woe or weal. It is from God. And it was blessed of my Father. Where does your salvation start? Where does it start? God is triune. Who elects? It's the Father. It all starts from the Father. And that's why I believe this reference says, Come who are blessed of my Father. Because your election started from the Father. Galatians chapter 3, verse 9 says, So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. And then in Romans 7 and 8, he quotes from uh, Psalm 32, 1 through 2, where he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. It's because he took it on the cross. He imputed his righteousness to us. And that is the blessed man. Just a few more here. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with what? Material blessings? No. He does, but that's not the context. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I would recommend reading Ephesians 1, 2. It's a great chapter. Don't stop there. Go to Ephesians 2. You know what? Just If you've got time, just go ahead and read the whole book of Ephesians. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14 says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are what? You're blessed. Who are those who are blessed? Those who are the true Christians. Because the Bible tells us that they hated Christ. They, they tried to, to come at Him. They hurled insults at Him. And He says that the student is not above the teacher. If they hated me first, they'll hate you. Don't consider it anything less than blessed. Because we're going to find out later in the Beatitudes, those who are persecuted are the children of God. You're blessed. That's a far cry from a lot of times how we think when we're persecuted, isn't it? I can agree. I can attest to this. When's the last time 
that you had a run-in with someone or you felt like the whole world was attacking you and your beliefs. Oh, we're there. We know that. Felt like the minority. But you know what? We should stay. Honestly, we could come to this text and say, we're blessed. We're the blessed ones. Not because we're anything, but because of the Father who has shined His face upon us, lifted His countenance upon us. And if they persecute us for the sake of Christ, we are true children of God. And that's a blessedness that only comes from Him. Revelation 19, here we go into this uh, text in verse 9. Then He said to me, write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now let me ask you a question, just humor me. Is everyone invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb in the same way? They can't be. Blessed are those who are invited. The blessed one is the one whom God has shined His face upon, lifted His countenance upon, and changed. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, these are the true words of God. Those who will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, those are the blessed ones, because that comes from God and God alone. Revelation 22, 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the city, gates into the city. Who's the blessed one? The one who has the right to the tree of life and can enter to the city. That's the blessed one. So we're at the book, at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 22, the last chapter, and we see that the blessed one is the one who has eternal life. And we go all the way back to number six and we say, blessed is the man who what? May God Bless you and keep you. The Lord shine His face upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance and give you peace. We said all that to show you the context of what is happening at the start of the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to address those who are blessed. Being blessed is from God as it speaks of God's favor upon people. So you see what's at stake here? Two oracles. Woe and weal, judgment and doom or blessedness coming from God and God alone. Now, with that being said, Jesus saw the crowds. He went up on the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, here's the first thing out of his mouth. This is the first point that he's going to make. You ready? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the first point that Jesus makes in his first public sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Blessedness, we know, is from God. It's where God gives favor upon those people. Some will take this text and say, look, 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 look. Only those who are truly materially poor, those are the ones whom are blessed. Those are the ones who the kingdom of heaven. They'll say, see, the kingdom of heaven is for the outcast and the, the physically poor. Only the poor are getting into heaven. Jesus said it's easier for the, the, the camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. See, it's for the poor. It's just for the poor. That's not what it's meaning here. It says poor in spirit. So the one whom God has shined his face upon, lifted his countenance upon, everyone that he does that will have one common characteristic. They'll be poor in spirit. What does that mean? This is referring to those who are humble, broken, 
poor in spirit. They know they have no hope in themselves. They're nothing without God. Utterly dependent upon Him. The poor in spirit do not boast in themselves, but depend absolutely, and they are dependent on God's mercy, grace, and favor. They have no other hope. They know that in themselves, they have nothing to bring. It's not like they're, they're saying, look at all my accolades, look at all my goodness, look at all my trophies, look at everything I have. Look, 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 look. But they're saying, I'm nothing. I have nothing to bring you. I am dependent on you. I, I, I am nothing. It's like John said, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe or tie his shoe. I can't do that. I am nothing on my own. And think about what the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 64. He says our righteousness is like what? Filthy garments. Filthy rags, some translations will say. Dirty rags. You know, the kind of analogy that would be for the poor. The filthy garments. The shredded clothes. The ragged clothes. We've seen people on the street that look like that, don't we? They don't have anything. Their garments are filthy and stained and, and tore all to pieces. And that is what Christ says that we are to acknowledge that our state is before Him. And only in Him can we take this filthy garment that we call our righteousness and be covered with the perfect, imputed, sinless work and perfection of His Son. We come as paupers, if you will, in our own spirit, in our own righteousness. We have none. We're bankrupt. We come before God bankrupt in our own righteousness. Those who are truly blessed by God, they're broken with conviction. They're broken by who they are truly in the sight, in the eyes of a holy God. They do not rely on their own righteousness as their righteousness is poor and bankrupt, but rely on the work of Christ. So many people. I was listening to a debate the other night, and there was a Jewish man on there. And all I could think about when I heard this guy speak was the apostle, not the apostle Paul at the time, but Saul, Paul, before he was converted, this Jew sounded just like him. He kept mocking that someone would have to die for my sin. I'm responsible for my own righteousness. It was my righteousness that will get me there. God looks at my righteousness as the way to heaven. And I'm thinking, you're doomed. You're, if that's your qualification, that you don't think that he came and died, that you don't need to substitute death, and you alone in your own righteousness is going to get you to heaven, you're sadly mistaken. But there's so many people that boast. That's what Paul did before his conversion. Look at me. A Pharisee of all Pharisees, keeping the law so perfectly, advancing above those, even above my age. Look at all my accolades. And what did he find? We see this in uh, Philippians chapter 3, that when he, he thought he was the standard, keeping it by the law, he thought he could qualify himself as good and righteous by the law. But Philippians 3 says that when he found Christ and Christ found him, that what happened? He realized, oh, that was dung. It was garbage. And now he knows that the standard is Christ. And he sets his eyes on him. 
so many people trying to do it on their own merit, trying to keep it on their own merit, trying to, to just work, 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 and uh, some days they're saved, some days they're not. Depends on how the day goes. They try to make it on their own righteousness, proud when they are doing enough they think is good, and what a sad state. Here's what I will tell you. The more that I understand the doctrines of grace, the more I understand the truth of the Bible, it only can elicit one true response. It is absolutely being poor in spirit. That's all it could be. I mean, we are the beggars. We are the poor. We are the ones covered in filthy garments that are shredded and torn, and we are face to face with the perfect, sinless, holy God and creator of this universe. And here we are in our filthy, filthy rags, poor in spirit, is how we come. Those are the blessed ones, because in His regeneration, He begins to open our eyes to that state and that reality. That He owes us nothing. Not for one second are we even good enough or able to, to please Him without His working in us. And when God truly shines His face upon you and truly lifts His countenance upon you, you truly understand you are bankrupt and you have no hope but Him. We see the poor so often reaching for a handout. I have no hope with what you give me. Isn't that how we are? We have no hope if He does not give us grace. We're the beggars. That's what R.C. said. We should not be proud. We're one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's what Christians are. And without the mercy of grace of God, we have no hope. Do we realize that tonight? Only those who are blessed and are poor in spirit will enter the kingdom of heaven. That is the correlation. I want to read a few verses here at the bottom of your sheet. We see this brokenness in spirit here in Psalm 51, verse 16 through 17. This is David's prayer of repentance. This is just a portion. He says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What an amazing verse. Did you hear what he just said? The eternal holy one who dwells on the high and holy place, whose heaven and the, the heavens and the earth are his footstool, and, and there's no place that doesn't contain him, and, and nothing can hold his glory. The God who is so infinite and all present says, I dwell in the high and the holy place. I'm the holy one, and I dwell in all the universe. 
to the places you as humans can't even comprehend. That's where I dwell as well. But you know where else I dwell? I come down to you, those who are contrite and humble and broken in heart. Those are the ones that I revive. Those are the ones that I seek. How many times in the New Testament do you see Jesus telling the Pharisees, you don't have to worry about me coming your way. I only come for those who are sick and know it. You're well. You're good. You think you're good. You're fine. You don't need a physician. I'm going to the ones who know they're broken and sick. Those who are poor in spirit, that's who I'm going to rescue. That's what he told them all the time. I'm looking for the ones who know they have no hope. And I believe that one of the greatest examples of this, as we close, will be found in Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. And what you're going to hear here is this. Do you remember when we started and we talked about the two different kinds of oracles or, or, or words of God? What was the first one? Woe. And the second one was wheel or blessedness. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 13 or 23, that whole chapter is talking about woe. Woe unto you, Pharisees. You are proud. You stand with your flowing robes. You stand at the corners and you say prayers, not for the glory of God, but so that you could be seen. And when you give, you don't do where the right hand doesn't know where the left hand is giving, but you do it where everybody can see because you're doing it for your glory. You're not broken in spirit. You're not poor in spirit. You're very proud in spirit and you don't need a savior in your mind. And now we're going to come to this context here in Luke chapter 18. And you're going to see the Pharisee, that who, one who is proud and thinks he's not poor in spirit or not poor before the eyes of God. And you're going to see another. You're going to see another one who is the tax collector, who is the scum of the earth at that time to the Jewish people. So you're going to have the one who looked the most prestigious. You're going to have the one that was most despised. And one is going to walk away that day with the kingdom of heaven as their inheritance. And one is going to walk away with a woe upon them. Let's read this. In Luke chapter 18, verse 19, or verse 9 is where we start. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. There's the context. You see it? These are not the poor in spirit. These are the ones who know or think that they don't need any help. And viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and another a tax collector. Let me say this 30 seconds. The tax collectors were considered traitors. They were traitors to the Jewish people. The Romans would come and find sellouts from the Jews who would work for them, and they would levy a a massive amount of taxes on the Jews, and they would keep royalties from it. So what the Jewish people would see is that when they would come to these tax collectors, they would see them taking their money, racking up all this tax against them. They were oppressed and physically poor while some others and their own people were working with the Romans and living in wealth. They were considered traitors. They were hated. So when you see a publican or a tax collector in the New Testament, know that they are hated by the Jews. They hated because they are considered traitors. Just a side note, if you ever want to see an amazing story, go to Luke chapter 5. You're going to see that one of Jesus' disciples and one who authored a gospel account 
was a tax collector who was sitting by a tax booth one day when the Son of God come by his way and uttered these two words, follow me. And he stood up from his tax booth and he left it all behind. And now you are reading the very words of that man. It was Matthew. The same gospel account that you read from tonight is that tax collector who was called by the Son of God. That's a pretty cool story. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. That's his story. But look at this dramatic shift in the tax collector who was hated and despised. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. What a story. What a picture. You couldn't have two more polar opposite people in this parable. One was proud and boastful, and the other was poor in spirit. Knew that he was a sinner. Knew he was an outcast. Knew he was not accepted by people. Knew that he was no good on his own. Knew that he was stealing from people more than likely. Knew all these things. He knew who he was in comparison to the holy God. And that's why his eyes, the Pharisees at the corner praying to be seen. And this guy who's poor in spirit, he can't even look up. Because he knows who he is in comparison to the holy, righteous God. He can't even look up and his only cry is one of mercy. I am the poor, ragged beggar who's bankrupt in his own righteousness. I have no hope. Have mercy on me. And what was his state that day? He went home justified. You know what that meant? That that blessing started with the Father before the foundation of the world. And then he was called he was predestined, then he was called. And guess what? Because he was called, he was justified. And because he's justified, guess what? He is then glorified. Now listen to how the story ends as we go back to Matthew chapter 5. Remember, this is the one who's been justified, the poor in spirit. And it's, just, it's not just, we do this at, our, at the time of our conversion and we see the brokenness in spirit, but Christians should live a life that is daily a poor in spirit. Meaning, we should never be boastful for one second. We should never be arrogant for one second. We should realize that if God, who put the blessing upon us, was to ever... And he doesn't do this. Let me, let me just... This is all an analogy. He does not do this. Repeat, he does not do this. But if this beggar, who was clothed with the righteousness of God, if that God was to ever pull back his robe of righteousness, 
and just leave us there in our true nature, do you know what you would see? The most filthy, vile, poor, wretched, unrighteous person there could ever be. Let us never forget. The only thing that clothes us, that will be our entrance into heaven, is the righteousness of God. Let us never forget that for a second. How, when we understand who God is, could we ever be arrogant? Because underneath His righteousness, I know what there is. And what is underneath His righteousness that He has covered in me is one who deserves the woe, woe, woe judgment of God. We come to Christ poor in spirit because the working of the Spirit regenerates us to understand that. But this does not stop on the day of regeneration. It is something that is a characteristic of the true child of God that we are to be poor in spirit and know our dependency is upon Him. This man walked away justified. And if you know the golden chain, like I said, that means that He's going to be glorified. This one who is poor in spirit, his inheritance is in the kingdom of God. And now I want to draw your attention back to verse 3 as we close. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He gives grace to the, to the, to the humble and he opposes the proud. And if you're a believer today, if God has blessed you, if He's shined His face upon you, and you are broken by His grace, and you know you're nothing without Him, and you know that that is your condition, then just like Peter said, look to heaven to where your home is. And the fact that this eternal God would look at a sinner from the foundation of the world and set His love upon them and let His face shine upon them and light His, counsel upon, his countenance upon Him is there anything more blessed than that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a sobering reminder that we need to hear every day of our lives. That we are absolutely nothing without you. We bring nothing to you in our own work, in our own merit that would allow us to have entrance into your holy city. God, there's nothing good in me except you. And Lord, I pray that we would take this first point of your sermon and know it's there for a reason. And Lord, let us understand how important it is to you that we are humble, that we are broken by sin, that we know that it is by you and you alone that we have any hope. God, I want to thank you for chasing down a broken, bankrupt, 
beggar with garments that are filthy and poor. And God, you clothed me with the garments of a king. To which I don't deserve. Let me never boast in myself. But Lord, let me continue to be poor in spirit every day, every second. Because that promise is that one day we will be with you, the one who shined his light upon us to where we see the ultimate fulfillment of that when the glory and the radiance of your being shines upon that city. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.